2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. There's a baby formula shortage in the U.S. leaving parents of infants scrambling to find alternatives. It began when Similac manufacturer Abbott Nutrition, one of four baby formula makers in the U.S., suspended production at a Michigan plant over safety issues and recalled some powdered infant formulas. Inventory on store shelves plummeted in certain areas, and there have been multiple stories of parents who've needed to travel miles outside their communities to purchase formula. Many turn to social media, like a Facebook group called Find My Formula CT that has become a go-to resource for some Connecticut families. That group has more than 2,000 members. Today, where we live, we talk to a local pediatrician to help answer questions from families about feeding their babies during the shortage. Now, every mother's story is different some can exclusively breastfeed, while others only use baby formula. There are mothers like myself who did both, breastfed and then switched to formula. And some babies with special health needs may only get formula. Now, I can't imagine the anxiety parents have been experiencing. Now, how are you managing the shortage with this an infant to feed at home? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is Connecticut Public's health reporter Nicole Leonard who's been covering this story. Nicole, welcome back to the
3: show. Hey Lucy, thanks for having me. Uh,
2: I had mentioned you know the anxiety that this must be causing you know so many families when they their babies may be using formula and it's been hard to to find on the store shelves. What have you been hearing?
3: It's been, a re- like you said, it's been a really um, anxiety-filled time. It's been extremely stressful for families. People are angry, sad, um, just kind of in despair about what's going on. And like you said, I mean, it, it runs the range. Some people are having more difficulty than others. Um, but for the most part, I'm hearing, especially from healthcare providers, that most, if not all, of the families they see who use formula are, are being impacted in some way.
2: Now, I reference social media, which has helped some families find formula. You talked with Rachel Ridington, who I understand started this Facebook group called Find My Formula CT. Let's hear what she shared with you.
4: I work a full time job. I can't always get to the store when some of my friends tell me they have it. So by the time I would get out of work, it'd be gone
2: and so when did rachel start up this group i had mentioned that abbott closed that michigan plant back in february but have there been uh, fluctuations in the supply before then nicole
3: yeah so she started the group a little earlier this year it might have been either right around the time the the recall was issued in february and the plant closer a little before that and she actually created this group just as a way to pull in some people she knew people who you know friends who knew friends who were just looking for formula. I mean, like you heard her say, she's a, she's working full time. Not everybody has a partner at home to help them. People are busy with other life stuff. And so it can be um, you know, burdensome to go out constantly and get formula. And even before this national shortage uh, came to be, you can imagine um, that the supply chain issue that has impacted so many other things during the pandemic has also impacted the production of formula. And and if we go even further back, um, you know, there are only a very small number of companies that make all of the formula produced in the United States. And so when one of those companies has a problem, it affects those formulas. And so there there have been times in the past where people couldn't find a certain brand or couldn't find the the certain type of formula that they really preferred. Uh, Nothing like the, the current national shortage, but there have been gaps in the past of people struggling to find the right formula and the right formula at the right cost. So she created this group to try and just help parents connect with each other and say, hey, you know, they have this formula at this store. Do you want me to pick it up for you? I'll see you on, you know, on the weekend. Um, And of course, uh, I don't think she could have predicted exactly the situation we're in now, which is a major national crisis. So this group has grown up from, I think she said, it started with about 200 members earlier in the year, and now it has more than 4.5 thousand members uh, just kind of overnight.
2: Oh, wow what a resource for, for a local residents. Now, if you're listening and you've been struggling to find formula, or maybe there's someone in your family uh, whose infant relies on it, we'd love to hear Have you been managing. Maybe you're helping your coworker or your neighbor find formula somewhere in Connecticut. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Nicole, you've included data in your reporting, I've, I believe from Data Assembly, which is a retail data firm. So what what is the nationwide out of stock rate for baby formula right now? And, and how much did it
3: peak? Yeah, so it's a, it's a moving target right now. But uh, Data Assembly is a company that looks at trends in the retail market and specifically like grocery stores and, and grocery items. And the latest report that they had issued uh, said that 43%, they had a 43% out of stock rate nationally for formula. So that's been the, uh, I believe, one of the highest rates that we've seen. It also varies depending on where you are, you know, geographically, there are some states and there are some metro areas that have seen as high as 50% during this national shortage. Um, Other places are doing a little bit better, but it has been in the double digits of the percentage of of out-of-stock formula. When we look at this time, last year, the the out of stock percentages, were only in the single digits. So it's, it's really, it's significant.
2: What did data assembly show in terms of uh, metro areas in Connecticut, like Hartford, New Haven? How bad is it, Nicole?
3: yeah i mean the hartford new haven uh just last month hartford new haven uh was mentioned in one of their reports as having one of the highest of stock rates in the country there were a couple of metro areas that were in between the that 40 and 50 percent out of stock uh range so like i said it, it depends on where you are in the country um everyone's getting hit though but uh, some areas are getting hit a little harder
2: We'd love to hear from you again, our number 888-720-9677. I wanted to bring a pediatrician into the conversation with us on Zoom, Dr. Leslie Sood, who's a pediatrician at the Yale Medicine Pediatrics. Dr. Sood, welcome
0: to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So when we
2: think about this crisis for some families who are struggling to find formula, and I'm wondering what your response is, what are you hearing from families that you serve?
0: Right. Well, I am fortunate to serve families that um, live in a metropolitan area where there are a number of options where they can shop. And it seems that between the smaller um, mom and pop type stores that have had larger supplies and then the larger retail chains, most of our families have been able to find sources of formula. I also practice in um, a federally qualified health center, that's the clinical setting that I practice in, um, that is um, very well connected with the women, infants, and children supplemental nutritional um, assistance program. And WIC has been doing a fantastic job working around the clock to maintain a database and continuously update resources for families to help them locate needed formulas.
2: Uh, when we think about uh, this shortage, you know, in recent memory, has this ever happened before in this
0: country, Doctor soot Not in my memory, no.
2: I want to take a quick call. Uh, Aaron's calling in from Litchfield. Aaron, what are you experiencing?
1: Oh, hi. Um, I'm a foster care provider, and I'm providing care for an infant now. Couple of things. One, um, all foster babies in the state get WIC. And um, under WIC, there's only a certain type of formula that you'd be able to get. For example, I have to get Similex sensitive. Now, I can't go into the store if there's something else on the shelf and and just buy it using the WIC benefit. I would have to pay for that out of pocket. Secondly, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this yet, but every time a baby switches formula, it gives them gastrointestinal um, issues that are akin to having like a stomach virus. So that's all.
2: Thank you, Aaron, for calling in. You can to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Dr. Sue, did you want to respond to what Aaron shared with us?
0: Yeah. The, so for the first um, question, um, it turns out that a certain number of states and Connecticut is fortunate to be one of them. Um, are WIC, The WIC program that is administered through the states are providing waivers so that the um, Families that use WIC and rely on WIC can actually use their WIC rebates um, and vouchers to provide a number, to purchase a number of different formulas, not just the Similac sensitive that was the designated contract formula before this short this crisis shortage. So I don't know if the caller has been able since the shortage to try to locate other formulas, but it's supposed to, these regulations are supposed to have been loosened up dramatically. Um so I would check on that. Um, and uh, the second question was about sensitivity or, right. or causing problems. When you
2: switch, when you switch uh, formulas, how that yeah. impacts a baby.
0: Yeah, so, um, and I provided in the chat um, um, some links to resources. Um, the Connecticut Department of Public Health um, provides a, a resource list that shows which formulas are comparable to other formulas. So, for example, if any formula is labeled as comfort protein, another brand formula that has the same similar type of labeling is likely going to have a a very um, similar composition um, and nutritional profile so that the switch, even if there's a few days of discomfort or change, should work itself out in a matter of time.
2: We'll share that link uh, with our listeners uh, on Twitter, at where we live and also put it on our Facebook page. And you can also find that information on our website post show ctpublic.org slash where we live. Dr. Sood, getting back to the shortage, you know, you know, have families resorted to making their own formula? I think the New York Times reported, you know, some parents have been rationing formula or watering it down. I mean, this certainly does not sound safe.
0: <clears throat> yes, um, I have not heard personally or worked with families that are making their own formula. Um, We are being asked about it, but mostly by the media. Um, And the official recommendation from all of the regulatory agencies, the CDC, the FDA, the USDA, the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly advises against the preparation of homemade formulas at home for various reasons. So the answer is no. And I think the the reason is we just don't have any recent experience with it. Having said that, um, I was presented with a recipe that the World Health Organization has published in a monograph um, about how to prepare formula. And I just looked at it for the first time yesterday. Um, it the formula, I think, would maybe be okay if it was prepared in, in a very, Controlled way, under you know, using following the directions explicitly under very sanitary um, conditions. But the formula is deficient in needed nutrients like iron and other minerals. So I would not recommend it past a day or two. It would just be a form of of calories that would get us through a very you know critical time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And certainly could not be suitable for any baby with special nutritional needs.
2: Thank you for clarifying that for us. Uh, Nicole Leonard is still with us, who's Connecticut Public's health reporter. Uh, You'd mentioned uh, earlier social media has been a useful tool for families looking to find the formula that their infant uh, uses. But you've also been speaking to local organizations like the Diaper Bank. Uh, Tell us how they're helping families in our state.
3: Yeah, there are organizations like the Diaper Bank that um, have always worked with families in trying to connect them with infant products um, and other support services and resources for them, um, including, you know, if the family didn't know they were eligible for the WIC program, that's something that they help people connect and, and make sure they get the to the right places to apply for that program. So the diaper bank in this crisis has been involved is that um, you know they already have connections with these families. They have a supply of baby formula that is pandemic related. And so now they have this supply of baby formula that they can help distribute to families in need. And they've been working with more than, I think it's like 60 to 70 other organizations across the state who work directly with families a lot of, you know, families in vulnerable communities and marginalized communities um, and helping them connect with formula and helping them distribute that formula to families who are really in need, who, um, you know, may not be able to uh, afford formula. If they see it at a higher price, either online or something like that, they just, they won't be able to afford it. Um, I think the WIC program was brought up and something that's been brought up a couple of times is that um, WIC uh, participants, I I believe, uh, can't use their benefits online for online purchases. So that's been a problem Um, online, like Amazon, if you're buying formula there, they can't use their benefits that way. So um, they're limited. So these organizations like the Diaper Bank have been really uh, crucial in connecting families who are really in need uh, of formula and who are are struggling to find it anywhere else.
2: Given the shortage and from what some of our congressional delegation members have said in recent days, Nicole, are prices spiking? Are we hearing about price gouging?
3: Yeah, I mean, in general, we're seeing a little bit of a price hike across the board. And that is common for when when goods are like in high demand and there's a limited number of them. So that's Sort of normal for, for you know, if we're in a crisis type of situation, we actually saw this happen during the pandemic, right? When when there were supply chain issues and the prices of things um, got risen a little bit high higher because they were in demand, but there was only so few of them. So that's normal. When we're talking about price gouging, it's really those you know, astronomical prices that are being placed on products that usually aren't coming from the manufacturing companies or the the box stores. They're really kind of coming from people who are potentially reselling items, which is not, uh, there's no law against that. Um, People have been doing that online, say they've, you know, bought formula and they don't need it. And so they just want the exact, you know, price point that they bought it for if somebody's willing to buy it. But we're really seeing, you know, one example that U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal brought up earlier in the day is that, you know, people used to be selling formula that they may no longer needed um, on eBay for like $30 a can. And there's an instance where he's just seen it listed for $80 a can. That's pretty significant for one for one can. So there are, in general, reports about that going on across the country. Um, specifically here in Connecticut, they're not... I've I've seen observational reports of this online. Um, The attorney general's office is asking people to submit claims to them and to get in contact with them when they come across these instances, because they're going to be collecting uh, these cases to see if there's, you know, any grounds for them to go after individuals or people who are trying to take advantage of the situation, basically, by making a profit off off the crisis. Mm.
2: In recent days, I think Abbott Nutrition has announced it's going to plan to resume production. The FDA says it's going to ease the import regulations for a baby formula. That's all good news, but I would assume this is going to take uh, several weeks before we start to see the stock replenished, Nicole.
3: Yeah, Abbott said that if they get final FDA approval and court approval of this deal that they've come to, and and that deal is between them and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about them taking more precautions at the plant and and doing things to rectify some of the safety control issues that were identified by an investigation uh, this year, an inspection at the plant, um, that deal, uh, when it's finalized and when production actually begins, it's going to take uh, another, they say, six to eight weeks for a product to actually reach the shelves, and that's if everything goes like perfectly smoothly. And um, you know, product still has to come from this plant and be distributed all, all over the country. So. It's going to take time. And then, of course, there are, I've spoken to families and um, providers and pediatricians who hope that, you know, when product does begin to hit the shelves, that the hope is that people don't start hoarding it. Because as you can imagine, Lucy, people are really, this is a really stressful time um, and anxiety, you know, a time that's filled with a lot of anxiety. And you can imagine that a parent who has gone through this for the last couple of weeks, when they see formula, they might buy a little more than they they used to because they don't want to go back to that feeling um on the other hand you know when people buy more than they need it leaves somebody else without without baby formula so that's the concern going forward is that even when product does hit the shelf and it could take several months for this crisis to resolve that um hopefully people don't start hoarding formula when it does come out
2: You're hearing Nicole Leonard here on Where We Live. She's health reporter for Connecticut Public. Nicole, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
2: Staying with us is pediatrician Dr. Leslie Sood with Yale Medicine Pediatrics as we continue talking about this baby formula shortage. And and after the break, we're going to hear from an economist about this shortage, and we're going to examine how U.S. workplace policies can have an impact on mothers and the decisions they need to make to feed their babies. We want to hear from you, too, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Health Care. This is Where
2: We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Have you been scrambling to find baby formula on store shelves as supply issues persist in parts of the U.S., including here in Connecticut? We wanna hear from you this hour, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The Washington Post reports this shortage disproportionately affects low-income families since half the baby formula purchased in the U.S. is by recipients of a Food Assistance Program Benefiting Poor Mothers and Young Children, also known as WIC. Joining us now is an economist to talk more about how the U.S. got to this precarious place. With us on Zoom, Dr. Samantha Skank, Assistant Professor of Economics at Central Connecticut State University.
4: Samantha, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I wanted to start with uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro recently um, saying both Abbott Nutrition and the FDA must be investigated. To recap, you know Similac manufacturer Abbott, one of four baby formula makers in the U.S., suspended production at a Michigan plant back in February over safety issues and voluntarily recalled certain powdered infant formulas. Abbott also has a 1.7 billion dollar contract with the USDA for infant formula, and they supply to the Problem, program rather. This is what Congresswoman DeLaura said to the press on Monday.
0: October is when the report went to the Food and Drug Administration. December, the Food and Drug Administration interviewed the whistleblower. In February is when they recalled the product. So four months, four months before letting the public know about a contaminated.
2: This certainly raises a, a lot of questions uh, in the public. Uh, Samantha, I, I asked Dr. Leslie Sood earlier. You know, have we seen a shortage like this in recent memory? And she said, not that she could recall. I mean, how shocking is this to
4: you? Well, it, you know, it. I think over the last couple of years, it's been shocking to us all to see um, some of the. Sh- Uh, shortages and supply chain issues that we've had uh, here in the United States, Um, you know, the wealthiest country in the world. We don't expect things like this to be out of stock. Uh, However, once I started to do a little more digging into the market structure of uh, formula in this country, I'm actually not really surprised that this would happen during a time of upheaval, uh, like during COVID and all these supply chain issues, our, our supply of formula is actually uh, not very resilient uh, because it's so reliant on so few manufacturers. And there's a lot of regulations on uh, formula imported from the rest of the world. So if, you know, one thing goes wrong, particularly with Abbott, who has 40% of the formula market in the United States, um, if something goes wrong with them, um, that will put a strain on the supply.
2: That's right. So the U.S. produces 98% of the infant formula it consumes, the primary source of imports from Mexico, Ireland, and the Netherlands. We're hearing now the FDA working to increase imports, and uh, Abbott may be resuming production at its Michigan plant. Uh, So do you think that this will be uh, necessary to ease a shortage in the short term, Samantha?
4: Uh, Yes, I think that still it will take quite some time for those regulations to be eased and then for the formula from overseas to actually uh, reach store shelves Um, i think that it is an important tool for them to use in the short term but i also think that it's something that they should look at uh, in the long term and to keep um to keep encouraging some imports into our markets uh, in order to make this market a little bit more resilient to supply shocks.
2: Again, you can join us eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, 720 9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Barbara tweeted at us uh, under Trump, uh, they restricted imports of formula from Canada. And so we imported no formula from Canada in 2021, leaving us vulnerable to domestic shock. Is that another layer here?
4: Yes, definitely. With the new trade deal that was... Um, Brokered under Trump with Canada and Mexico, they placed a very steep tariff uh, on on any imported formula. It's about seventeen point five percent, which makes it unrealistic for any uh, foreign formula company to be competitive. Um, and so, yes, uh, Canadian Canadian formula companies are um, they they can import, uh, but they're just not encouraged to because of that. Um, percent tax
2: is there lobbying happening by domestic formula companies Uh, you know we heard nicole leonard mention that you know there are about four uh, baby formula uh, makers in the u.s and i understand this has been the case for some time i was looking at a a report back in 2000 there was just three uh, domestic baby formula makers uh samantha
4: Yes. um, Actually, so this has been happening for quite some time. I'm sure that lobbying does play a role. However, the the biggest impact in in the past um, that has had on this market is the 1989 law passed by Congress that makes it so that when states implement their WIC program, they have to uh, choose, uh, they have to Uh, put out bids right, and they have to contract with a single formula company to provide uh, the formula for the WIC program. And the impetus for doing this was so that it would decrease the cost to taxpayers because the formula company that would win the bid would offer a significant rebate about up to like 85% of the wholesale cost of the formula. So it reduces the cost of the WIC program, uh, but then it creates a virtual monopoly in the in in each state. And the bids often go to uh, very, very large companies that can offer these reduced costs because of their very large production. Um, and so that has been basically reduced the domestic competition here in the United States. So that's for instance, why in uh, Connecticut, Similac, um, which is Abbott, uh, is the, the chosen brand for Connecticut WIC. And so, you know, unless, you know, there's these, um, I know that they're loosening restrictions right now, uh, but normally everybody on WIC has to purchase Similac and that's why Connecticut is seeing such a shortage, or we're one of the worst-hit uh, states.
2: Again, you're hearing Dr. Samantha Skank here on Where We Live, Assistant Professor of Economics at Central Connecticut State University. As we talk about this baby formula shortage, you know, we want it to pan out a little, and just talk uh, more also about uh, how US policies affect mothers and the decisions they need to make uh, when they have infants at home and they're also working. Samantha, you specialize in feminist economics. And so we know that Connecticut just passed a Paid Family Leave Act. Of course, that's not uh, the case in, in many states uh, in the country. But when we think about how this impacts the decisions women's ha- women have to make, whether they choose uh, to breastfeed or why they choose to, to go to formula, because of of their work schedules. I'm thinking of of, uh, hourly wage earners who may not be able to have the flexibility or time to pump at work. Uh, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk more about that.
4: Uh, Yes, so the United States is the only wealthy industrialized country that does not have a national uh, paid family leave or maternity leave program. So a lot of workers, some workers do have access to unpaid leave through the family medical leave act but even then that only covers 56 percent of employees Uh, so a lot of workers especially low wage workers rely on their employer to provide them with any leave benefits and so this means that uh, in the united states women have very short maternity leaves And this means that they have less time to bond with their baby, um, after their birth. And it also means that they have less time to, uh, to, uh, form a concrete breastfeeding relationship or to establish that breastfeeding. And so they often go back to work, uh, when their milk supply isn't well established. And when they go to work and they have to pump, um, they can see a very large reduction in their supply, making it uh, very difficult to continue that breastfeeding relationship. And so for instance, um, 25% of women in this country return to work within two weeks of giving birth and only half of women take uh, five or more weeks off after giving birth. Uh, So these very short maternity leaves um, make it very difficult to breastfeed uh, babies. And so oftentimes these women um, switch to formula because uh, of their supply um, going down.
2: Uh, pediatrician, Dr. Leslie Sood with Yale Medicine Pediatrics is still with us. Dr. Sood, I'm wondering if you can uh, add to this as well. When we think about uh, the women that uh, come to the clinic uh, that, that you're at in New Haven, how difficult would it be for them um, if they choose to breastfeed to maintain that milk supply? Because they also have to work.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. Um, echoing what Samantha just said, that many of the women I care for Um, work shift work or hourly jobs that don't have um, comfortable hygienic places, private places for women to pump. Um, They're often given very limited breaks throughout the course of their workday to pump. um, And they also don't have places to store milk. So they need to be able to afford a high quality cooler to bring with them to work to keep their their expressed breast milk um, cool during the day. Um, so it as a as a society, we do have a quite a bit of work to do to make breastfeeding um, expected and normative in the workplace and throughout communities.
2: You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Samantha, we've done some shows in the last two years about how there are fewer women uh, in uh, the labor force. And then we think about some of the decisions that uh, women have to make uh, when they decide to have families and how it's so difficult to balance uh, the needs of their families, their infants with their working schedule, certainly impacts the labor force
4: too. Oh definitely. And we can def- we can see that throughout the COVID pandemic, uh, there's been this uh, huge exodus of women from the labor market um, because of all of the childcare responsibilities that they faced during the pandemic when schools were closed, daycares were closed. Um, And so they didn't have that uh, child care available. And so they ended up having to quit their jobs or take extended leaves um, because you just just weren't able to manage um, both work and the child care. Um, And the wage gap that we see here in the United States, which is currently, you know, women make about 82 cents on the dollar uh, for every dollar that. A man makes. Um, a lot of that is due to experience that is lost from women who take time out of the labor force when they have children. Um, so they definitely have more caregiving responsibilities at home, which makes it difficult to compete on the labor market with their male counterparts. And so that's one of the major um, contributors to the wage gap that we see. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I wanted to bring up uh, stigma because, you know, with this baby formula shortage, you know, a lot of women uh, speaking out about, you know, even before this, uh, the decisions that mothers make, whether they choose to maybe use formula exclusively or to choose to breastfeed. You know, there's a lot of opinions now out there, Dr. sued that, oh, well, maybe more women should just breastfeed. It's not that simple. I wonder if you can talk about that.
0: Right. Well, We certainly want to honor a woman's choice of how they would like to feed their baby and also recognize um, that many women cannot breastfeed for various reasons. Um, They may be undergoing medical treatments or have um, had prophylactic mastectomies to prevent breast cancer. Um, They may be on medication, which is contraindicated for breastfeeding um, they may not be, uh, many mothers are not birth birthing mothers. We have foster parents, adoptive parents, um, and we even have, you know, same-sex couples who are raising children um, that um, are unable to express their own breast milk. So we recognize that right right up front. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we have a very informed um community of mother, of parents um, who can make, you know, who understand what their options are and have good knowledge, good access to knowledge and healthcare and social community supports to achieve their feeding goals.
2: Monica's calling in from Middletown. Monica, what did you want to share?
1: Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I, I'm calling from the Connecticut Rescue Coalition. Um, And I just wanted to share that that employment, going back to work, is one of the major challenges that that women face when they're making the choice about whether to breastfeed or um, use infant formula. And so we created a a breastfeeding-friendly worksite recognition program to support employers in following the law, because it is the law in Connecticut, but but also to um, just support them in doing the best they can.
2: Do you find that there are a lot of employers that are shifting their thinking here that are being responsive to this, Monica?
1: Well, I think this, the formula crisis, it's not, um, they can't respond quickly enough because of the crisis. But I do think it's bringing some attention to, as you were talking about on the show, some of the um, systemic and societal barriers that, that women are up against when they're trying to make these choices and um so we're just trying to help alleviate some of that.
2: You mentioned long-term you're with the, goal, I guess, yeah. You mentioned you're with the Connecticut Breastfeeding Coalitions. So is this easy to find uh, on Facebook if people want to learn more?
1: Yeah, so um breastfeeding CT on Facebook and um breastfeedingct.org on our website.
2: Well, thank you, Monica, for calling in. Uh, you know, before we head to break, you know, I, I did want to bring up uh, when we think about uh, institutional racism in healthcare. Uh, you know, there have been reports that you know black women have the lowest breastfeeding initiation rate of all racial groups at 69 percent, uh, compared with 85 percent of white women uh, and 83 percent of women overall. That's according to the ACLU. There was a 2019 George Mason University study that investigated the feeding patterns of 190 low-income, predominantly Hispanic immigrant women who attended two WIC clinics in Virginia. They were, uh, eight out of 10 of them were living below the federal poverty line. Uh, Food insecurity was high. And the report found that the early rates of introduction of formula in the population surveyed is alarming. Seventeen percent reported giving formula at the first feed, and forty-five percent before they left the hospital. And so, I wanted to ask both of you. I'll start with you, Dr. Sud. When we think about, you know, how uh, the, the, obviously the woman makes the choice of the best way to feed their infant, but in terms of how uh, women are treated differently in, in the healthcare system about those choices, I'm wondering if you can respond to those studies.
0: Yes, well, this is um, something that I feel very passionate about Um, when I make newborn nursery rounds. I will often walk into the room of a family and I'm told ahead of time that the baby is breastfeeding and yet there's little samples of formula all over the room. Um, We as a medical community tend to medicalize normal physiologic transitions. Um, that we see in the baby and in the mother. So it takes about 72 hours for the full rich mother's milk to be produced. But in the interim, the colostrum um, that is present is highly nutritious, it's caloric, and it contains a number of critically essential nutrients that are important for the baby to get. We also weigh the baby every single day, and the normal weight loss that we see in babies is medicalized and often responded to by you know, offering the baby formula um, while we're waiting for the mother's milk to come in on that third day when it is absolutely not necessary to do so. And this is particularly true for children, infants that are born um, via um, C section. Those moms are often prehydrated or given IV fluids in terms of antibiotics and other solutions during their surgery so that when the baby is born, they have excess water weight on board that they quickly pee out. And then we see that clinically as a weight loss, but it's not a true weight loss, it's just a water weight loss. And yet, if this is not explained carefully to the family, it raises alarm and um, uh, perception that that they're not able to feed their baby enough and that their baby's losing weight.
2: Well, Dr. Leslie Sood, thank you for joining us with your perspective here on Where We Live. Uh, Again, Dr. Sood is with Yale Medicine Pediatrics. Thank you for your time today.
0: It was a pleasure.
2: You're listening to Where We Live. Uh, Staying with us is Dr. Samantha Skank, Assistant Professor of Economics at Central Connecticut State University. We're going to continue talking after the break and take your calls to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank mm-hmm. you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalba Thanchel. Today we've been talking about the baby formula shortage and also talking about how policies in the U.S. impact the decisions mothers have to make to feed their infants. Uh, still with us on Zoom, Dr. Samantha Skank, Assistant Professor of Economics at Central Connecticut State University. I'm wondering if you could pick up where Dr. Sud uh, left off before we had to take a break uh, when we think about um, the decisions that are made and how women are encouraged to either use formula or feel like they're, you know, making a bad decision if, if they, they don't breastfeed. There's a report from the US Department of Agriculture that cites aggressive formula product marketing that actually discourages women from breastfeeding. What can you tell us?
4: Um, yes, I think that uh, marketing uh, formula uh, is controversial, uh, because there is, um, you know, there's the breastfeeding option um, that the health practitioners want to encourage. Um, I think that as uh, as women have started to breastfeed more over the last couple decades, um, formula companies have aggressively marketed to Black mothers, in particular, uh, the use of formula as uh, a better choice or um, a more superior form of nutrition. Um, And so that is one of the reasons why we see women of color having lower breastfeeding rates. Um, And I think that, you know, that is one of the things going forward that. Congress uh, may want to think about regulating.
2: Yeah, you also specialize in, in feminist economics. There was a paper in Taylor and Francis Online. Now, this was back in 2008 by two Australian researchers. But uh, they, they criticize the failure to count women's unpaid and reproductive work in measures of economic production, such as the GDP. Uh, this paper examines the treatment of human milk production and national accounting guidelines. And the researchers write, quote, while human milk production meets the standard national accounting criteria for inclusion in GDP, current practice is to ignore its significant economic value. i wonder if you could respond to that.
4: Uh, I definitely agree. Um, you know, as the field of economics is starting to pay more attention to the production that happens at home, including human milk production. Um, Normally economics treats kind of the household and what happens within it as what we call a black box, something that uh, we can't really see and is not really important for things like calculating gross domestic product and things like that. Um, But a lot of work is done within the home and Most of it, the majority of it, is done by women, and so it ends up being invisible to our national accounting systems. Um, And what happens with that? Because it's sort of invisible, it means it's devalued, right? And so I've seen a lot of things on the internet um, recently about uh, formula versus breastfeeding. And so during this formula shortage, a lot of mothers that are using formula are being shamed and. Um, saying or people are saying to them, well, why don't you just breastfeed? It's free, right? Um, well, it's not actually free. Um, it's only free if you don't value women's time, uh, because breastfeeding is very time intensive. So there's an opportunity cost um, to doing uh, doing so to breastfeeding. So I actually saw one study that um, looked at how many hours a woman would breastfeed over the course of a year and. Um, Turned that into an hour, or a, kind of a total cost figure in terms of what she would give up in wages if she earns, you know, the median earnings in the United States, and it would be about fourteen thousand uh, dollars worth of her time spent breastfeeding just in the first year alone. Um, and you know, it's definitely important uh, for society and for you know that individual family that she's producing milk, um, but it's seen as as something that's, you know, maybe less valuable than something that's purchased on the market, because it doesn't come with a dollar value. Right. You know,
2: I was looking at a graph uh, that Vox put out when we think about uh, from those who do choose to breastfeed, you know, it's not free, as you mentioned. There are all the supplies attached to it. We remember all the bottles, the milk storage bags. Don't forget about the nursing bras. I think (laughs) insurance companies now uh, cover the breast pump, uh, but there's also nipple cream. I mean, these are all the things that, you know, aren't discussed. And so I guess maybe one of the the bright lights from this crisis of a a Formula shortage. Shortage is, you know, thinking about, um, you know, these, these, uh, these greater uh, points uh, that you and the other guests have made in terms of, you know, how we treat mothers and how we impact the choices they make, Samantha.
4: Yes, definitely. And, and the points that you bring up about um, pumping in particular being quite expensive, this really impacts um, a lot of low-income mothers more, especially when we have a, a WIC program where formula can be free. Right, but then um, pumping is expensive in terms of time as well as accessories and things like that. Um, Low income mothers might not have that choice to pump. Maybe their insurance gives them a low quality pump so that impacts their supply. Um, They also might feel less able to ask for accommodations at work in order to pump. Um, So I definitely think that the work of mothers needs to be recognized, um, and especially when it comes to helping low income mothers deal with this um, work caregiving balance.
2: I wanted to share a comment from a listener uh, who writes, I feel like there wasn't enough support for breastfeeding when I gave birth to my son at Yale almost eight years ago. When we got home, I was left to my own devices and had to look for help myself. Irene from Women's Well in New Haven, back then it was at St. Raphael's, was the best and I'll be forever grateful for all of her help. So we're glad to hear that someone came uh, to her assistance uh, during a very stressful time uh, when you have a newborn and, and trying to make decisions uh, to keep them healthy as well as uh, for mothers uh, to stay uh, healthy as well. Uh, Dr. Samantha Skank, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Assistant Professor of Economics at Central Connecticut State University. It was a pleasure to hear from you.
4: Thank you so much. It was great being here.
2: I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Uh, tomorrow we'll be back with another live show and you can listen to where we live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app.